right, what's up, guys? Jay Martin here, investor and CEO of Cambridge House. And my guest today is Philip Goff, who's a philosopher and researcher at uh, Durham University in the UK. He's the author of Galileo's Air, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness, and the host of the Mind Chat podcast. Uh, Philip, I'm really excited to chat to you today about a, a handful of a handful of topics that I would say I'm very curious about and know very little about. And so I'm hoping you can help me today understand some some themes a bit better. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm really looking forward to chatting. Well, for anybody who's not familiar with who you are and maybe your book, um, could you start there with a high-level overview of who you are, Philip, and how you spend your time? So I'm a philosopher at Durham University here in the, the cold north of England. And um, as you say, my main focus is thinking and researching about consciousness and how the phenomenon of consciousness fits into our overall scientific theory of reality. That's my main focus, but I guess in general, I'm interested in the nature of reality, how all the things we know to be real hang together uh, and fit together into a single worldview. And um, yeah, I'm just, I guess, pretty obsessed with the big questions. And so, I mean, I, I, wrote, I wrote an academic book on, on the topic of consciousness, um, in 2017 with Oxford University Press. And, and I guess after that, I just wanted to try and reach out to a broader audience. I think philosophers so often are just talking to themselves and you get lost in the jargon and you just, um, and so I just really wanted to try and um, communicate to a broader audience. So I wrote this much shorter book aimed at, aimed at a general audience called Galileo's Error. And um, that was a couple of years ago now. And, and it's been fantastic. Just get the response I've got from the public but also from scientists, you know, and, and um, people working in other areas of academia, connecting, finding some connection to these issues. Yeah, so I guess I, I guess I defend, as we'll get onto probably, some views that were once seen as kind of ridiculous, but have, have become in the last five or 10 years, really much more into the mainstream. And so, and so it's, you know, it's quite an exciting time for consciousness studies, I think. Feels like we're finally making some progress. Okay, yeah, so I've got a couple of threads I want to pull on there. I, I love that concept of moving from ridiculous to mainstream. It's similar <laughs> to moving from complexity to simplicity, right? Everything's complex until we understand it. And then often that, that complex issue seems simple once we can wrap our minds around it. Um, talk to me about, about the why, Philip. Why do you study consciousness? What's, what's your desired outcome? I mean, I think I've just been obsessed by consciousness as far back as I can remember, really. I, th I mean, I think there are a, a number of phenomena that philosophers worry about that seem hard to fit into our standard scientific picture of things. So free will is another one people think about, you know, how do we fit our sense of free agency into the scientific story of the universe as a kind of deterministic system, or at least a system where everything's sort of determined at the, the level of physics. That seems, seems to be nothing left for us to do. So that's, that's one challenge philosophers focus on. Or also value. If you think about morality, right and wrong, good and bad, how do they fit into the kind of facts about right and wrong fit into the cold-blooded facts of natural science, you know? Um, abstract objects is another one, like the thing, kind of things mathematicians talk about, numbers, functions, vectors, you know, where the hell are they? Um, 
but so I think so there are a number of these phenomena I think I think consciousness is the most troubling though because it's so hard to deny it exists so with all these other phenomena it's at least an option to say look maybe it doesn't really exist maybe we're not really free in the way we think we are you know maybe there aren't really facts about good and bad and right and wrong maybe that's more social convention or something but with consciousness it's it's just so hard to deny that you know nobody's ever felt pain or nobody's ever seen color so that it's the thing that's most real most undeniable it pervades every second of waking life and yet it's proved so hard to fit into our scientific story of the body and the brain you know we've made great progress on our scientific understanding of the brain but we still have even really haven't even the beginnings of an explanation of how electrochemical signaling in the brain could somehow produce an inner world of colors and sounds and smells and tastes that each of us enjoys every second of waking life so there's just a total total mystery there and this is one of the profound challenges of contemporary science as well as philosophy so yeah it's fascinating so when you say when you say consciousness just to define this a little bit you're referring to lived experience is that right yeah it's a good question it is it's a really ambiguous word that people use in all sorts of different ways and often people use it to mean something quite sophisticated like awareness of one's own existence or something um on the tv series westworld they seem to use that like that but if anyone's seen that but um but yeah the way the way I would tend to use consciousness, it's just subjective lived experience. Your consciousness is what it's like to be you. So right now you're having an auditory experience of my voice speaking to you, visual experience of the colors and shapes around you. Um, maybe you feel tired. Maybe you feel happy. Uh, if you pay attention, you can feel the tactile sensation of the clothes on your body. This is all part of what it's like to be you right now and and that's all what all we mean by consciousness so in a way it's as i say it's the most familiar thing people sometimes say consciousness is a mystery because nobody knows what it is i don't like that way of putting it because i think you know nothing is more obvious than the reality of one's own feelings and experiences we're not talking about something supernatural here we're just talking about feeling pleasure feeling pain seeing red the challenge is not what it is but how it fits into the scientific story of the body and the brain and that's really where the mystery lies right and 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 also i guess what's the outcome of understanding it right like i you know i want to i want to get there but <clears throat> what you just explained i think what i heard is, is consciousness is your experience of reality yeah to a degree and if i can simplify it that much and, yeah. and to me i okay so i hear that as almost algorithmic right and mm. because for example i'm hearing you talk to me right now and i could interpret you a handful of ways based on what i think i know about you from what i've read online maybe your book the way you present yourself um your tonality all of these things impact how i receive what you're saying and 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 who yeah. you are as a consequence and therefore my experience right now talking to you is 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 just it's a formula of all those inputs Right. And then 
myself as well, right? Do I feel like I am intelligent enough to understand what you're saying? Or am I intimidated by what you're saying? And therefore yeah. I feel my, my self-esteem drop and I put you up on a pedestal. Like all of these things factor in, you know? Um, you talked about the uh, sensation of clothes on your body. Exactly. Am I tired? Am I more irritable? Yeah. Is the shirt too tight, right? Do I feel fit? And therefore the shirt feels great because it's tight or do I feel like I haven't hit the gym in a month and therefore the shirt feels uncomfortably tight because I don't feel good in my body. All of these inputs, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes it, when scientists and philosophers talk about consciousness, they, they oversimplify it and they just give, well, the examples I started off with seeing color, feeling pain, these kind of very animal things. But I mean, actually con human consciousness is, saturated with meaning if you, if you look around you you know if I look around me I don't just see colors and shapes I see a cup a face when I hear your voice I don't just hear you know sounds phonemes I hear meaningful words and and actually I mean I think you know there's lots of different ways you can approach consciousness and if you if your interest is really understanding human consciousness understanding what it's like to be a human probably what you should turn to is, is not philosophy or science but is literature you know you should read proust you should read uh, joyce you know these teach you the subtleties and the nuances of first person human experience what it's like to be a person um so it depends what you're interested in what i'm interested in is is not so much as i say what consciousness is although that's obviously really important crucial but as a philosopher or the particular kind of philosopher I am, I'm interested in you know, how it all fits together, right? We've got this story of the brain that we kind of understand pretty well, although there's huge gaps we could get onto. There's also this, there's me as I, as I know me from the inside, my pleasures, my pains, my ex meaningful experience of the world. How do that, how do they fit together? How does, how does, you know, the, if this, imagine a scientist looking in my brain from the outside, seeing all this electrochemical signaling, and me experiencing myself from the inside, colors, sounds, smells, taste, how do, how do they fit together? That's, that's really one way of thinking about what's become known as the hard problem of consciousness, this challenge of, of, of understanding how the, those two perspectives fit together. So I wanna jump back to the why a little bit, and you know maybe I'll reference like Yuval Harari when he talks about consciousness I'm sure you're familiar with some of his statements right and his explanation is that it's it's irrelevant right it's uh it's an unmeasurable phenomenon that we think exists but it doesn't matter whether it does or it doesn't because it doesn't impact anything that we can measure sort of you know so how do you respond how would you dispute that or how would you answer that yeah, I mean, there's, there's been a, an increase of a lot of wacky views on consciousness recently, and I'm putting my own view in that category, not to be disparaging. Sure. So one is my view might get onto, but, you know, another is what's, what's become known as illusionism, the view that consciousness doesn't even exist. Um, and actually, well, my own podcast, Mind Chat, I, I, I co-host with somebody who has that view, so somebody with the polar opposite viewpoint to me on consciousness so the gimmick is you know i think consciousness is everywhere he thinks it's nowhere and um you know i think these are all people struggling with the fact that it doesn't seem to admit of standard scientific explanation and 
And one way I try to, you know, get at that is that physical science works with a purely quantitative vocabulary. Um, physics is purely mathematical, but even as we move up to chemistry and neuroscience, we have this purely quantitative description of things, of phenomena, whereas our consciousness involves qualities, colors, sounds, smells, tastes, the redness of a red experience, the smell of coffee, the taste of mint, our experience is full of these qualities. And you can't really capture those kinds of qualities in the purely quantitative language of physical science. And so as long as your description of the brain is framed in this purely quantitative language, you just leave out these qualities and hence kind of leave out consciousness itself. So, so that's the mystery thing, you know, where in the purely quantitative story of the brain are there these qualities we see, we, ex, we directly encounter in our experience. Um, so I have one approach to that. I, I kind of think, well, we need to sort of rethink our trad traditional scientific approach to bring in the reality of those qualities. Another approach is to say, maybe they don't really exist. If they don't show up in a scientific story, they, they, they don't really exist. Maybe it's like witches or fairy dust or something, you know, demon possession. We used to believe in them, but they've become outmoded. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm open to all sorts of views and getting discussed and digging into them and trying to, I love trying to see where people, trying to get in the mindset of people I really disagree with. But I mean, personally for me, I, I do find that view a bit implausible because one thing, for one thing, all experience of the world is mediated by consciousness, right? I don't, the only reason I know there's a cup in front of me is because I experience, I consciously experience the cup. The only reason scientists get the results of their experiments is because they can consciously experience the test results or the computer readout or whatever. So even scientific knowledge is everything is mediated through consciousness. So I find it hard to make sense of the idea that we could have scientific knowledge that could undermine the reality of consciousness when all scientific knowledge is mediated through consciousness. So, so I say in my book, Galileo's Area, it's a bit like an astronomer claiming they've just, they've shown astronomy can show you telescopes don't exist or something. I don't know. You, you, you need telescopes to do astronomy. You need consciousness to, to do science to, or to engage with reality at all. So, yeah, but we should give these things a, a shot, I think. Well, I, I, I want to ask, I still want to ask why. And I guess my, my why comes from a place of um, what are the limitations of not studying consciousness? What are we, where are we falling short scientifically uh, right now? Because we, we view the world through this materialistic, quantitative um theme right and so you know what are we missing as a consequence yeah and it all it always depends what you're trying to do i mean that's the question you know what are we trying to do here and that there is a lot we can do already in our current scientific paradigm um we can I often make a big deal that you can't directly observe someone's consciousness. You can't look inside their brain and see their feelings and experiences. But what you, what you can do is you can, you can ask someone what they're feeling and experiencing. And if I'm a neuroscientist, I can, I can 
scan your brain as I'm asking you what you're experiencing, or uh, maybe when I'm stimulating a bit of your brain, and we can start to correlate what kinds of experience more and more precisely, sorry, what kinds of brain activity go along with what kinds of experience. And we're starting to hone in on, on quite precise answers to that question. And then we can start to ask, you know, what in general, what kinds of brain activity are necessary and sufficient for any kind of experience? So that is something we can kind of handle in the current scientific paradigm. But I think, I think that's not the full story because what we ultimately want an explanation of is why, you know, why does brain activity go along with experience? Why should it? Um, and, I, and I don't think that's a question we can just answer with more experiments because consciousness is, is not a publicly observable phenomenon. And so all we can do with experiments is scan people's brains. You know, we don't have direct access to the consciousness. We just have direct access to the, to, the, um, to the brain. So we can ask people what they're experiencing. We can scan their brains. We can bring the two together. But that will always leave open the question, why? Why do they go together? And I think there we need to, we need to address things in a slightly different way. So, I mean, you can ask, well, why does that matter? Why does it, you know, and scientists can get frustrated. You know, you think you just want the experimental results and you just want to get on with it. You know, you don't, it gets frustrating when you can't answer a question with an experiment. But I would say, you know, one, firstly, science isn't just about, you know, building bridges and curing disease, as important as those things are, especially in the case of a pandemic. But it's about the, the noble and natural desire to understand reality, to have our best guess of what reality is like. So I think we want to know what is going on in reality to explain how consciousness comes about in the brain. So, so that's just a, an important question, I think. But also, conscious, you know, this isn't just an abstract theoretical puzzle consciousness is it is at the root of human identity fundamentally you know we relate to each other as beings with feelings and experiences consciousness is the source of everything that is of, of value in life you know from deep emotions subtle thoughts complicated visual experiences of beauty or a sunset you know this is what life is all about and i believe although this is controversial for the reasons I've explained, you know, partially, our, our, our current scientific worldview can't accommodate the reality of consciousness. And so we're in a strange period of history where our official worldview denies the existence of the, the phenomenon that's most evident, our own experiences, and the, the thing that gives life meaning and significance. And I think, you know, that that is important. That does can lead to a sense of alienation or a sense that we don't fit into the world that science is currently telling us about. So then do you care to speculate at all on, I don't know. I mean, the way, when I'm hearing you speak, I, I, my mind goes to like, so what, you know, what is reality then? And, 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 you know, I guess what's the bigger question? Like, and I start going down paths of like non-duality, right. And shared consciousness and, and, you know, it, it's, it's, I kind of feel like if I'm just focused on does my own consciousness exist, I'm missing the, the bigger picture if we're going down this path, right? Yeah. And acknowledging our own consciousness is maybe a good place to start, but like, 
what's that the tip of the iceberg what's the iceberg right if that's it feels like you know what i mean so so how do you then think about that philip like do you when it comes to the, the bigger question i guess you know what is reality you know what is the collective experience what is is there such thing you know if you want to speculate and get just imaginative with me how do you approach that yeah well the i mean the big revolution re more recently is so i think you know for 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 decades, the approach was the approach to this problem of consciousness was to start with matter, to start with the matter of the brain, ultimately, as it's understood through physics, and think, how do you get consciousness out of that? You know, how do you get feelings and experiences out of electrochemical signaling? I think, you know, we've kind of banged our head against a brick wall with that for decades now and got precisely nowhere you know there's a lot we have learned but there's still we still haven't got anywhere on that crucial question how does matter produce consciousness um what the panpsychist does sorry which is which is to introduce the the the, the approach i myself contribute to and, and defend is to try and turn that on its head right instead of starting with matter and um and trying to get consciousness out of matter we start with consciousness and try to get physics out of consciousness. And that kind of seems totally bizarre at first, but actually that, that turns out to be pretty easy to do. Um, and, and the reason it's pretty easy to do is because um, physics is, is purely mathematical. So this was, I mean, the reason there's been a resurgence of interest in this approach um, in, in philosophy in recent years is, actually the rediscovery of certain important work from the 1930s by the philosopher Nobel laureate Bertrand Russell. And this was sort of completely forgotten about for a long time. But back in, back in the 20s and 30s, Russell was just thinking really hard about the fact that physics is purely mathematical. And that's something, you know, we kind of take for granted that physics, physics is purely mathematical, but that wasn't always the case. This is this was a deliberate decision, as I talk in my book, by, by Galileo. Galileo revolutionized science by making it purely mathematical. But Russell was thinking, what does that tell us about reality? You know, as a scientist, you may be just interested in doing the experiments, getting the results. But as a philosopher, Russell was thinking, what does it tell us about reality that physics, our fundamental science, is purely mathematical? And, and there's a couple of ways you could go with that. You could either say, uh, well, maybe maybe that tells us that at, at base, the world we live in is made up of mathematics, you know, numbers, functions, vectors. That's the kind of stuff physics talks about. Maybe that's what the world is made of. The, the physicist Max Tegmark defends this kind of view. But an alternative approach that, that Russell explored was, well, maybe there's something underlying that mathematical structure. Maybe there's something that it's that that mathematical structure is the structure of. There's this great line from um, the Brief History of Time, a Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking. He said, you know, even when we get the final theory of physics, it'll just be a bunch of equations. It won't tell us what breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe. So, so the idea that the the, um, the panpsychist approach is to is to start with very simple conscious entities at the fundamental level of physics, very simple kinds of experience, 
behaving in really simple ways because they have very simple kinds of experience. And because they behave in very simple ways, they're quite predictable. Through their interactions, they make patterns and mathematical structures. And then the, 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 the hypothesis is those mathematical structures are the structures that physics identifies. So in this way, we get physics out of facts about consciousness. So there, fundamentally, there are these two approaches. We know that consciousness exists. We know that physics exists. Do we get consciousness out of physics or do we get physics out of consciousness? For decades, people tried to get consciousness out of physics. I don't think it can be done. It's actually really easy, though, to do it the other way around. And so, you know, people thought for a long time, this view sounds kind of wacky that there's consciousness at the bottom of reality. That sounds new age and fluffy. But I think once you really think through how it elegantly avoids many of these deep mysteries we've been wrestling with in the science and philosophy of consciousness, it just seems really the, the obvious way forward. So there's, it's just really opened up a new kind of dynamic research program that is bearing fruit. You know, immediately I have to think anybody who's done a, a, a deep guided or unguided maybe uh, psychedelic ceremony would probably resonate with what you're saying. And, and I would say I, I do, you know, I, I've had some inexplicable experiences that I can't define, but I come away with the memory of experience that absolutely occurred. And, yeah. uh, and what is that? Right. And, and it's not, it's hard to put words to, right. But there's some sort of shared experience that often occurs in those moments and in those experiences that is inexplicable with our current framework of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I talk, I talk a little bit about, about these kinds of experiences in the final chapter of my book. So, I mean, the, the first four chapters of Galileo's era, kind of the cold blooded scientific and philosophical case for this view and, and trying to persuade people that, um, you know, this is a, hard-nosed kind of scientific naturalistic approach despite what the cultural connotations are and a lot of the people defending this are just you know total secular atheists you know who don't believe in any kind of transcendent reality just but they do believe in ordinary human experience and they and they appreciate that we need a new approach to deal with that um nonetheless you know the final chapter is exploring the, the implications for human experience and um and the human situation. And um, yeah, so, so I, I think uh, this commitment to this panpsychist stuff needn't be connected with any, any um, spiritual perspective on things. But if for independent reasons, maybe certain psychedelic experiences you've had, uh, you take some spiritual, you have some spiritual convictions. I suppose, you know, a panpsychist view is more consonant with those, can be more consonant with those convictions. So, you know, suppose you you take psychedelics and you think there's this higher form of consciousness underlying all things. Maybe it's at, at the core of all of our minds. Um, you know, if you're a, if you're a materialist, which is to say, you think the fundamental story of reality is just what physics tells us, you're going to have to think that's a delusion. You know, it's just stuff playing tricks with your brain. But if you already if you're a panpsychist and you already think um, that the fundamental level of reality is, is, is made up of forms of consciousness, then it's not too much of a leap to think 
this higher form of consciousness you've been seem to have encountered in your psychedelic experience is part of that fundamental story so yeah so it needn't be connected but it might be more consonant with certain such views but it's i mean it's a deep philosophical question you know should should we take these kinds of experiences seriously as as telling us about reality or not and i mean i, I still think the best work on this people might want to check out is a uh, William James, the you know the great nineteenth-century psychologist and philosopher, in his great text, the, uh, the the varieties of religious experience, he has a chapter on mysticism, and a lot of it is just cataloging as a psychological phenomenon various kinds of psychedelic and mystical experiences. But then in the end, he says, "Is it rational for the person having these experiences to take them seriously as telling them about the nature of reality?" And he says something quite interesting. He says, suppose you say no, suppose you say, no, it's just something funny going on with your brain that's making you, you know, creating a delusion or hallucination. But he says, well, look, we can't prove that any of our experiences correspond to an external reality. You know, I might be in the matrix, you know, these are old philosophical thought experiments. I might be dreaming. You know, we, I can't prove, I can't get outside of my consciousness and prove that it corresponds to some kind of external reality. So if you say to, the, to this person having the psychedelic experience, you're not allowed to trust that experience, but I'm allowed to trust my ordinary sensory experiences like of seeing the world around me. There seems a kind of double standard there. You know what, why is it okay to trust our mundane experiences, what they seem to purport to tell us about reality, but it's not okay to trust these more unusual experiences, which for what it's worth often seem to people having them more real than mm. mundane experiences. So, so I think there is, there, there is a philosophical case can be made for, for trusting, for trusting those experiences. But that's, I mean, that's a, I, I again, I want to emphasize that's a step beyond the more uh, conventional scientific task of explaining consciousness um, right. and, you know, the considerations yeah, well, it, it makes me wonder why we're less likely to question our spiritual grounding, right? If I was raised atheist, I'm, I'm, I'm not likely to question that theory, right? If I was raised monotheist, right? I'm less likely, if I was raised animist, right? Every plant and animal has a spirit, right? That's just the culture I was grown up in and everybody around me believed in this i would believe yeah. it too and i would find it very hard to question that because that's kind of the fabric of reality as i know it right yet we'll yeah. question many other things but but not that as as easily anyways right which yeah. makes this a hard thing to wrap our minds around and gets me to a place of like i guess why i kept on driving to the why because it's it's for me i think about the most complex issues that maybe we've overcome in the past, right? Like we believe the earth was flat. We discovered it was round. To somebody who grew up on a flat earth, trying to explain to them that it wasn't flat would be an impossible task, right? Yeah. If you, before we understood evolution, trying to explain to somebody that you actually evolved from an ape, to be like, obviously I didn't. What, what would make you say that, right? Look around, right? Mm -hmm. We were humans clearly, right? Why, why would we have been something else in the past, right? And it's impossible to wrap your mind around these like questions because they, they question what we are, right? Which, which is yeah. pretty tough, pretty, pretty tough. And, yeah. and that's why, you know, I get to like, what's a more near term, you know, try to explain internet protocol to somebody before electricity that just like, what do you, it doesn't make any sense. I can't even begin to wrap my mind around 
that, but you could probably explain the value of sharing information instantaneously with people all over the world, right? So the use case, the application is more yeah. approachable, right? Yeah. And then so, you know, what's that's, I, I wonder if it's possible to, to discuss the use case or application of, you know, consciousness breeds matter instead of matter breeding consciousness. Yeah, I mean, just just to go start with your first with your first point. Yeah, I think I think humans always think they're at the end of history. You know, they always yes. think. I mean, a classic example is you know with Copernicus. You know, with um, you know people were so convinced that the Earth was in the center of the universe, and the evidence counted against it, but was stacking up for so long. You know, there was you know the, the orbits didn't quite match the observations didn't quite match the theory so people try to get around it by postulating these these smaller orbits epicycles in addition to the basic orbits supposedly around the earth and then they had to do epicycles upon epicycles of you know getting more and more ad hoc to try and make the theory work and then of course all that was just so they were starting from the conviction you know the earth had to be in the center of the universe that was how we'd always understood it and and um trying to make the, the data the, fit the theory. And all of that was sort of swept away by Copernicus's radical idea that maybe the earth goes around the sun rather than the other way around. So I, I kind of think we're in a, in a similar situation now with consciousness. People just are convinced our current scientific approach has to be correct. But what I've, I mean, the whole point of my book, Galileo's Error is, and I think that the reason people don't think that is quite understandable. They think, you know, look at the success of physical science, you know, in explaining so much of our universe and incredible technology. But I go back to the history of the scientific revolution with Galileo and the reason it's been so successful is Galileo wants physics to be mathematical. And he, he knows to do that, we have to take consciousness out of the domain of science because consciousness involves these qualities that you can't capture in mathematics. So, so the reason, you know, so sci physical science, our current scientific paradigm kicks off with Galileo designing it in a way to exclude consciousness from its domain of inquiry. That goes really well. And now we're in this period of history where people think, hold on, how come we can't explain consciousness in these terms? What's going on here? You know, with the, Galileo would have said, of course you can't. I designed this to exclude consciousness. So yeah, I think, I, I think it's very hard for people to, think there's going to be a future where they look back on as sort of the past <laughs> essentially yeah. Which, um yeah which is is shouldn't be that hard because I, I you could say with with certainty that science supported the concept that the earth was the center of the universe right with conviction yeah. there was evidence that supported this science supported with evidence bloodletting as a cure right for a long time yeah right? this is, is probably yeah. what killed george washington he had a throat infection mm -hmm. and the most educated doctors in the world were obviously treating the first president of the united states and decided bloodletting was what needed to happen here right because the yeah. scientific community supported this with years of evidence right now we're like why why would you think that made sense Right. But it's never yeah. obvious in the moment. Right. Yeah. You can always understand where people got where they you know, reached the views they reached. But then the problem is, you know, they, they spend their whole careers defending that view and they're not going to change. And no. um, 
And you no, build egos. I, and yeah, I can't remember which physicist now, what, what, one of the big founders of quantum physics, I think, said science proceeds one, one funeral at a time, which is a, a rather harsh way of saying. You yes. know, I mean, actually, what I found, what's interesting with panpsychism actually is as it's become more mainstream, the laughter's turned to anger and, you know, certain senior members of the profession getting really annoyed and pretty vocal and unprofessional on social media in certain cases when, um, you know, because this is, this is what I've taught my students all my life and it's changing. And, you know, that can be very uncomfortable when, you know, big figures, huge figures, guy, Michael Tai, who you won't know unless you're heavily, you know, you work in academic philosophy, but huge figure, um, going back to the 80s defending the conventional scientific approach and in his recent book has made a radical conversion to panpsychism it's got a like kind of like um richard dawkins becoming a christian <laughs> but um you know and that's really people find finding that 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 very difficult to to deal with but yeah but it's that's what's so exciting to me that it's it's um and you know through writing a, a more accessible book getting these ideas out to mainstream and there was recently uh, a special issue of the journal of consciousness studies with 18 essays 19 essays actually i think responding to um to my book galileo's error by by philosophers but also by scientists like carlo Rovelli and sean carroll and annie Seth and christoph koch so many of which um are, are online if people are interested in checking those out um but yes yeah, so it's just seeing you know scientists you know many critical as as they should be in this time when you know when matters are contentious you should have but a, a intense debate but also met you know many seeing a a um a connection with their own work like i um a an experimental psychologist uh, from strathclyde university in uh, in scotland got in touch with me spent his whole career studying autism experimentally and finding that this new panpsychist paradigm offers him a deeper way of understanding and explaining autism. So, you know, fascinating. So that's, you know, that's why it's, I'm just so glad to make a connection with a broader audience. Cause, and, you know, so, so this connects actually, we've segued nicely onto the, the main point of your question about, about the use thing. And, you know, look, I'm a philosopher. I'm, I'm sort of blue sky thinking and, you know, the nature reality. I'm not sort of so immediately focused on practical questions, but I think you, you never know where these things spin off. You know, the Bertrand Russell, who we've already mentioned and um, was, was together with Frege focused on um, a very abstract issue of trying to explain mathematics in terms of logic, just for the sake of it, you know, not for anything practical, but in doing that, they developed the foundations of modern logic which have been absolutely crucial in computer science, you know, obviously in all sorts of practical applications. Another great example, another favorite example of mine, uh, Reverend Thomas Bayes, who was excised, exercised, what's the word? Who was disturbed by David Hume's argument against miracles. David Hume had this famous argument that um, uh, any, any supposed miracle, it's always gonna be more likely that people are lying or deceived and that it was actually a, a violation of the laws of nature. So that was Hume's miracle. And then the Reverend Thomas Bayes was like, I want to respond to this. I, I, it's driving me mad. I believe in miracles. And, and he developed what's now called Bayes theorem, which is a piece of mathematics that is crucial to so much of science, crucial to the predictive processing framework in neuroscience, crucial to how we've studied the pandemic, uh, there was an article in the Guardian newspaper on Bayes theorem for 
in relation to its application to the pandemic. So, so you don't know where these things spin off. And I think, mm. and, and certainly for me as a philosopher, I think it's transformative of our picture of reality. And, and, and I think it can lead to a, a deeper relationship with the environment, for example. You know, if you, you know, if you think a tree is just a mechanism you're sort of you're only really interested in what it does for us maybe looking pretty or more importantly sustaining our existence but if you think as panpsychists tend to that you know a tree is a conscious entity in its own right although of a very alien kind then it becomes a focus of moral concern in its own right you know we see these horrific forest fires in brazil if you see that as the burning of conscious organisms I think that adds a, a whole new dimension. So, so I think it is certainly transformative of our, of our relationship with ourselves and the world around us and, and our relationship to the scientific story. And, you know, who knows where the spin-offs will be in a, in a more sort of practical way. Yeah, that, that gets me right there. You know, when you talk about the outcome, right? The outcome is potentially a transformative perception of reality. The outcome is maybe... Uh, more intimate relationship with nature because you look at things differently as conscious beings, right? You know, which I love. Uh, I love that idea, and I, I love that as a progression of our species, right? I think it's uh, I, I think it's the direction that we're headed, truthfully. Um, but you know, it, it makes me wonder when when I've heard I've heard us talk about the existence of consciousness before. And one way it was described was like, there's, there's maybe levels of complexity. Humans are very complex. Our consciousness is very complex. We feel the whole spectrum of emotions, pain, pleasure, all of it, right? When you can go down the, you know, gravity towards more simple organisms, a horse will experience less, but more than a mouse will experience. And then even less, maybe mosquito and even less, maybe bacteria. And, and, in the way we currently measure consciousness, that's easy to understand, right? Unless we are trying to fit the definition of consciousness back to a quantitative, you know, what is complex? What is complex consciousness? How, if we really like, you know, who are we to say that humans experience of consciousness is far more complex than that of bacteria if we are just hardly understanding the, understanding the concept at all, right? And maybe we're trying to fit it into this quantitative definition, but it's like, because how do you measure complexity, right? And yeah, what you <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. It's 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 very hard, and it's. I mean, what we need, we need, we need scientists and philosophers working hand in hand, lockstep. You know, I think, I think this isn't something we're just going to solve by you know more brain scans. But it's it's not something we're going to solve without brain scans either. You know, we need to we need to experiment and theorize, experiment and theorize. And you know, I mean, a lot of you know, a great panpsychist pan philosopher, uh, Hedda Hasselhoff Merck, spent an um, a year recently in the lab of Giulio Tononi, the neuroscientist who developed the integrated information theory of consciousness. So this is um, postulates that consciousness is correlated with integrated information which they try to give a mass mathematically precise account of um with that's represented with the, the greek letter phi and um and then the, the, the hypothesis is that consciousness is is correlated with um the level at which you get most phi most integrated information so on this view you know probably this glass of water isn't conscious because there's more 
integrated information in the molecules that make it up than, than in the glass as a whole. Whereas what's so distinctive about the brain is this huge amount, the way it stores information is hugely dependent on the rich networks of connections. If you, if you remove a tiny bit of the brain, I mean, this is why brains are quite different to computers. If you remove a few transistors, you don't necessarily lose that much information. You remove a tiny bit of the brain, you lose a hell of a lot of information because each neuron's connected to 10,000 others yielding trillions of connections. Uh, so the thought is that that's what's perhaps distinctive about consciousness. Um, that Not just huge amounts of information, but storing information in, in a way that's dependent on the web of connections. So, so that's an interesting theoretical, like experimental mathematical proposal. Still leaves the philosophical questions like, well, okay, but why, why would that give you consciousness rather than just complexity? But you can't, so you need the philosophical questions, but you can't just ask the philosophical questions without the experimental mathematical framework. So it's just so exciting that the, that the two are coming together to yield some promising results for the first time in a long time. Interesting. Yeah, I almost, I almost feel, I mean, and like I'm, I'm, I'm the, I'm the, the amateur uh, in this conversation, but you know, we're, we're trying to understand a qualitative experience with more quantitative um, measurements, right? Which is, it's almost like, you know, if you were to, to sail around the world and land where you started, and then you try to explain that in the context of a flat earth, you're like, wow, it's because of the, you know, it's like, well, no, the general yeah. concept is maybe need to be rethought, but okay. So I'm probably going off on a tangent. No, what do you no, think? I, about <laughs> I think that's right. I think, I think you right. can't. Yeah. I, I don't think you can reduce the qualitative, the quantitative. You have to, you have to have them both there from the base and build up. So that's why it's, yeah, it's, it's an alternative research, but here's another way of thinking about, you know, Rather, we've tried to explain consciousness in terms of utterly non-conscious processes in the brain. The approach of the panpsychist is, instead of explaining consciousness in terms of non-consciousness, explain consciousness in terms of, explain very complex human consciousness in terms of simpler forms of consciousness. And then those simpler forms of consciousness are postulated as basic fundamental features of matter. So the final theory when, when consciousness, when it comes along, isn't going to explain consciousness in terms of something utterly non-conscious. It will start with consciousness and build up from there. Yeah. So I think you're right that we can't <clears throat> totally get rid of the qualitative. Interesting. Now, you know, what do you think about, about evidence for the idea that, you know, matter is the result of consciousness, not consciousness being the result of matter? Um, in ideas like the placebo effect, right? Where, you know, we can, we can measure uh, visible change with, um, with, a, with, a, with a, a false input, right? But because the mind perceives a valid input, it creates the change, even though the actual input never really existed. It's a, a saline pill or something like this. And we're able to actually create physiological or biological shifts because our mind believed we were receiving something that would change. And even though we didn't, the change occurs. Yeah, placebos are very mysterious. And well, I mean, it, some interesting work here, my, 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 my friend, uh, Martin Picard, who's a, an, an, an experimental uh, neurologist at the um, at Columbia University, he has the um, uh, mitochondria 
psychobiology lab in Columbia University, and he's experimentally studying that the hypothesis that mitochondria in the brain are um, are to be understood as social networks um, and are not reducible to underlying chemistry and physics, but are basic irreducible social networks. Uh, media, so it's, it's mitochondria provide create energy uh, through their their activity in the brain. But he thinks of them in a way as independent mental life forms interacting. And he's he's also trying to use this to uh, to to explain the, the placebo effect and, and how the mind does um, have this deeply mysterious effect on the body, we know, which is so well understood. You know, we all pre- appreciate the reality of the placebo effect. I think it's too little focused on how weird it is. And um, so, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I suspect there, w- there will be, you know, more pretty revolutionary developments from this area. You should get Martin on to talk to him. I don't know. I don't know totally the details of, of, of how he's linking it to the placebo effect. But um, I mean, yeah, at a more theoretical level, I guess. Um, it just it just it just to me comes back to the to the same the same issue that we, we have a choice of, of um, can we, ex- do we try and explain consciousness in terms of matter or do we try to explain matter in terms of consciousness? Mm. And people just think, oh, it's obvious. It's totally obvious that we've got to explain consciousness in terms of matter, just as they thought, you know, it's totally obvious the earth's in the center of the universe. And, um, and why, why is that totally obvious? Because, you know, we've had this big mystery at the center of consciousness science that everyone acknowledges for decades and decades, just as we had the, you know, the, the, the mysteries with the orbits that we couldn't explain with the hypothesis that the earth was in the center of the universe. Mm. And there is another hypothesis here, well-developed, you know, we're not, no one's totally there with consciousness, but well-developed that, that gives a simple, elegant explanation of how we get physics and matter from facts about consciousness. The only reason people are not uh, not as engaging with it as much as they might do is just, you know, cultural connotations, feels weird, feels wacky. You know, as you say, it used to feel wacky that, you know, my great, great, great grandfather was an ape, you know, but we, we get used to these things or time slows down as you move quickly. Um, so, but, but so much is changing, you know, this view used to be laughed out of town and um, it's, you know, it's still a minority view, but um, it's now a view that's on the table that people take seriously. There's huge publications on it. And um, yeah, I think it's so, I mean, what you said, what really strikes me through this conversation is just the, the importance of, of acknowledging that we never know, right? We, yeah. we love to believe that we've got it now, right? We've got it right this time, yep. right? Right. You can go through medical history. You can go through understandings of, of our, uh, where we land in the cosmos, whatever, like pick your poison, right? The food pyramid, yeah. right? Get your, yeah. get your grains, right? Like we can just go through countless examples of us knowing we had it this time Absolutely. and then disproving Absolutely. it. Right. And that's, that's kind of the beauty of the human experience is like, it's this grand unknowable thing, which is so lovely. Like that's, I, I, I love that. That's, why I have a spiritual practice. What I love about it the most is that I just find it's this ab- abyss of unknowable uh, 
you know, existence, like what, and it's a, it's a never ending journey, just a continual evolution of like new questions, which is really fun. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I just love engaging with people I disagree with, like the guy I do my podcast mind chat with, you know, I, I just, I can't understand why are you thinking that way? But rather than just saying, oh, you're an idiot, you're, you know, try and get into their mindset and try and you might, you might end up agreeing with them and then you've, you've got closer to the truth perhaps, or, you know, even if you don't end up agreeing with them, I think you, you learn better to understand your own view. And, you know, so, so if someone says to me, you know, oh, I, I wasn't convinced by your argument, fair enough, but, but what, 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 where did I go wrong? You know, where did my argument go wrong? If you can't tell me that, then you don't understand my argument. And that's fair enough. It might be kind of complicated, but you know, you can't reject it until you understand, understand it, understand why I've reached the position I have and, and, and can tell and can work out for yourself, you know, where it, where, where it went wrong. And, you know, another thing, I mean, you connect to kind of spiritual practice there. I mean, I think, I think we're also too much in the dichotomy of, do you believe this or do you not believe it? You know, are mm. you, are you an atheist or do you believe in God? You know, do, do you, do you agree with Dawkins or the Pope, you know? <laughs> and um, I mean, I, I, I've, I've decided I want to write a book in sort of middle way off middle. I always hate the dichotomies. I always hate the dichotomies of, I don't know, uh, you know, communism or us capitalism or right. Uh, I don't know. And I, you know, the middle ground between traditional belief in God and Dawkins atheism I'm interested in the kind of middle ground and you know you don't have to like you know if you do engage with spirituality or spiritual practice you don't have to say you know you do have fleeting experiences of a greater reality or something you don't have to say that's definitely real or that's definitely bullshit that's created by my brain or something you can say you can engage it you can trust it a little bit you can work with it you know uh so that's how I think of I get I guess, I guess you know faith in I mean I, I I do myself engage with traditional religion actually I'm a church goer which is which is really uncommon for someone my age in the UK but um I, you know I don't know whether Christianity is true you know it's a long time ago who knows but I get I get a lot out of engaging with my community engaging with my tradition seeming to connect with something beyond myself Right. you know and uh, prayerful meditation and marking the changing of the seasons and the rites of passage and you know if it turns out not, not, not to be true you know I, I I've still gained something through you know the deepening of the person in, in that person and community in that practice so yeah I think um yeah there's certain things we need to move beyond all that kind of new atheism or well yeah or, and you know <laughs> yeah yeah i mean and that's what i what i love the most about it is is the unknowable from my perspective the unknowable like when this is all over is it just worms and dirt or is there something grand there's no way for me to know right but it's fun exploring uh, and yeah. uh just journeying through it look Philip, this has been super fun um i'm really glad i had the opportunity to chat with you because i don't know concepts that challenge me to wrap my mind around are just the most fun to, to chat through right so yeah appreciate your time thanks jay that's been really stimulating. Thanks for having me on. Good, good. So um, uh, the Mind Chat podcast, that's where you can find Philip. Uh, check out his book, Galileo's Air, and um, philipgoffphilosophy.com. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And Twitter, uh, philip underscore goff. 
Philip with one L, G-O-F-F. I spend too much time arguing on Twitter, but uh, <laughs> follow me on Twitter. I've got a blog that's I've got a blog with a ridiculous name that I won't say, but it's linked to from my website and um yeah, various videos and All right. articles and stuff. Sweet. Okay. Well, thanks again. I've, I've burned through our hour faster than I thought, but it was super fun. I got about six pages of notes now, which is always great. And uh, I'd love to catch up again sometime. So thanks for, thanks for your time, Philip. Thanks a lot, Jay. It's been fun. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.